bottle washer and gardener of the Life Enthusiast Co-op, Martin Patella. Hey Martin, how are you doing this fine day? Oh, I got my gumboots on, pitchfork in one hand and a bucket of manure in the other. Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, the name is the Life Enthusiast Co-op because uh, I grew up in uh, in the prairies and in the prairies the co-op was a very, very important part of of life because uh, and for those of you that may not be aware of what a co-op is, it's where the members actually own the business. So if it was a co-op grocery store, the members actually owned the grocery store and every every year, quarter, there might be a payout of a small amount of profit or, or whatever, but it was almost like you were buying food from yourself. And this was really important for the, a, a lot of the farmers uh, in particular, I think. Uh, well, that's what would have been my experience because my my family all came from small farms and in, in the Midwest. And so often to have this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling when I hear, you know, co-op. And of course, one of the things that we want to talk about is the condition of soil. And, and my uncles were, uh, you know, always very con- concerned about the weather and about their soil and, and how, how it was working in terms of growing food. And I have to say that, uh, unfortunately, they were not organic farmers. And <laughs> I think, and, and, and I can remember being out on the farm on the prairies. When you look out, you see you know, 30, 40 miles to the horizon. It's flat. And these winds would come up and the soil would be gone. Like, it wasn't all gone, but I mean, you could you could see it being lifted up and sort of taken away. And I really, one of the things we want to talk about today, of course, is the, the state of the soil that we're growing our food in. And, and even back then, I, it didn't take a genius to think there's something wrong with the way we're we're doing this. Right. I mean, in, in nature, when things grow, they seed themselves into an existing terrain. You don't ever see a full erosion of the surface that's 40 acres or 1,000 acres or whatever. It just can't in, happen. Well, no. You know, a prairie where it was was a rich carpet of, uh, of plants, right? Yeah. Grasses and, grasses and everything else that goes with it. And, yeah, all that stuff. And, and actually, I was talking to, uh, to a friend uh, not long ago, and his father and grandfather remember the original opening of the prairie for agriculture. Well, my grandfather was one of the people that opened the prairies. So right. he, unfortunately, he's passed away many years ago, but he homesteaded in two or three different places and where right. my uncle's farm is now, or farms are now, is where both my grandparents, uh, sets of grandparents. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I want to what I want to tell you is this: that they would gradually add to the uh, tilled field. So, uh, you know, every season they would add maybe uh, a six foot wide strip where they would actually turn the sod and uh, and just make it the first planting of of the field. Mm. And so what he was describing is that that the um, weeks or whatever they planted would be taller in the uh, in the strip that's closest or the youngest that the you know the fewest years of cultivation even then 
so that the wheat would be shorter in the middle, which was the oldest field, and taller at the edges because they was the youngest field. Oh, so yeah, because we're so what you're actually seeing is you're seeing the removal of the nutrients from the soil and not being replaced. That's right, immediately there. I mean, they saw it season to season. Three years later, the wheat was growing shorter than the, the freshest. Hmm. So, um, and so the blowing away of the topsoil is is a major issue. You know, when it dries up, and uh, and if the plants aren't up yet, it's completely vulnerable to winds, and it just picks it up. And in the 1930s, that the famous years of the dust bowl. That's that was really a, a disaster. A lot of the topsoil blew away. Which is just, you know, it's insane when you think about it. It's very sad, really. It's almost like they they come up with a system of farming that's self-destructive. It's not not sustainable. It's essentially a plunder, you know, plundering method of doing it. A plunderer is somebody who comes in and takes a resource without concern for it being there the next time. You know, that's essentially the, the kind of uh, behavior is where you come into the village, kill the men, take the women, and burn the huts and go back, right? You're reminding me of the mining industry, and I don't want to go off on that tangent. But uh, so we'll talk about depletion of what's going in the ground. But uh, yes, okay. So let's call it this: renewable versus non-renewable, sustainable versus non-sustainable right. practices. And we have this illusion of what we're doing as being sustainable because we've been throwing in, uh, you know, cheap fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides and all this sort of stuff that tries to force the plant to grow. And we have that. We have food today that's produced cheaper than it has ever been. You know, the food is phenomenally inexpensive compared to what it has been. You know, the fraction of my salary that goes toward food is smaller today than it was 50 or 100 years ago. Right. Unfortunately, the quality of food you're getting is also smaller. Yeah, it's exactly... Uh, commensurate with the value that I give it. Yeah. I pay I pay less for it and I get less for my money. Yeah. And the money, well anyway, we'll get into the value of the money. Oh, in, 19, in 1936, well, we're doing really good at staying focused today. In 1936, the U.S. Senate was presented with the results of a scientific study it had commissioned on minerals in our food. Uh, Mr. Fletcher uh, led that, that uh, study. The nutritional pioneers and geniuses of nutrition in this era demonstrated that countless human ills stem from the fact that impoverished soil in America no longer provided plant foods with the mineral elements essential for human nourishment and health. So, so con contemplate this. In 1936, they had already reported that the country was suffering illness due to the mineral depletion of the soil. And since 1936, we have still lost another two-thirds of what was in it then. Yep. I mean, today, the, it's been shown that... Uh, I have a study elsewhere on the website that shows that the carrots 
grown today have only 30% of the magnesium that they had uh, 70 years ago. Wow. And 70 years ago, they were already concerned. Worried. Yeah, they were worried 70 years ago. So we're now at probably 10% of what it should be. And that's, that's precisely what's going on. We have foods that are uh, calorie-rich and nutrient-poor. Mm-hmm. You know, when I eat a pound of carrots, there should be a certain amount of minerals in it. But there aren't. So at the end of the meal, the body has absorbed all manner of calories, but not enough nutrients. So at the end of the day, it can do nothing else other than report, I'm starving. So what you do next, you eat more. But because you're eating, again, calorie-rich, nutrient-poor food, the only logical result of that is obesity. Yeah, there's no other place you can go. Right. Well, so so the uh, the logical upshot of this is you must take supplementation. You must take minerals and other nutrients. You know, there there are three main uh, issues: missing minerals, missing enzymes, and phytonutrients. We'll focus on just the two: minerals and enzymes. But the cause of that is truly is in depletion of the soil. Yeah, because we're used to getting all of our nutrients from fresh, uncooked food, right? I mean, when you go back to when we were cavemen sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know, we, we would get that directly well, from... Well, yeah, the, hunter, the hunter-gatherer in North America would live on pemmican, which was a blend of berries and animal fats kind of thing, stored for the winter. And, of course, during the months of plenty, uh, would eat all the stuff that nature provided. Essentially, we were meat eaters with uh, whatever was in season. You know, like you would pull up plants and eat the tubers from, I don't know, stuff that grew in the marshes, where you would dig up some stuff where the rhizomes or tubers would grow. And then you would eat berries. And I mean, there wasn't really any farmed fruit, right? I mean, apples... I don't know that they even existed as such. Right. There'd be some fruits that would just be on the trees that they'd get. I'm thinking, berries, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm thinking choke cherry or something like that, right? Yeah, blueberries. Yes, that my, for sure. My favorite. Yes. <laughs> um, so here, Dr. Northern asked himself how foods can be used intelligently in the treatment of disease when they differed so widely in content. And the answer seemed to be that they could not be used intelligently. In establishing the fact that serious deficiencies existed and in searching out the reasons therefore, he made an extensive study of the soil. It was he who first voiced the surprising fact that we must make soil building the basis of food building in order to accomplish human building. Bear in mind, said Dr. Northern, that minerals are vital to human metabolism and health and that no plant or animal can appropriate to itself any mineral which is not present in the soil upon which it feeds. Right. So in other words, if it's not in the soil, it's not going to get into the plant. It's not going to get into the animal either. That's right. So and it's not going to get into us. 
Yes, we feed up on that. We feed either on the plant directly or on the uh, animal that's, that should have eaten that plant. So there probably is a difference between the wild meat of, of a deer or a uh, moose or caribou or something like that versus uh, the pig or the cow that has been fed on a farm. Yeah, I would say a huge difference. I've actually had an experience of that sort recently with my wife. You know, we've uh, we've known one another for you know, 30 years, and I remember taking her out to dinner, and we used to enjoy things like a Greek restaurant and order something like a souvlaki. You know, chicken souvlaki had been uh, our favorite. And I remember when we first met, you know, we were not vegetarians long ago then. And so we would uh, go eat that. I think it would be 1975 or 78 or, you know, some, somewhere back then. Mm-hmm. And then, then just recently we went to a Greek restaurant that just freshly opened in our town. And I said, well, what the heck, let's just try it. So we ordered it, chicken souvlaki. And this meat that we got was a water-filled, spongy, flavorless, sort of a bite that that was very unsatisfying. Hmm. It just it just had none of the flavors and density and uh, structure of what a uh, what a chicken was 30 years ago. Yeah, I'm certain of that. So. That's the demonstration to me that indeed what we're doing now is um, is not sustainable, and it's getting worse. Uh, you might have some memories, uh, Scott, of, of how food is or has changed over the years, right? Yeah, I was. You were actually reminding me when I was out on the farm visiting my uncles, and my uh, aunts would have these massive, to me, gardens where they would put rows of carrots and tomatoes and potatoes and all that sort of stuff and I was just thinking when you were talking about the difference in the in the you know when they would <coughs> they would have a chicken that they raised and then they they uh, ate how different that was from the chicken that, that I eat now but even recent more recently my father uh, still has a garden and it's a small little plot in the corner and he composts and composts and he, basically when he started the lawn was the lawn and right underneath it rock you know there was they just basically laid sod on rock so as you can imagine <coughs> where he lived he you know to have a garden was not really you know like yeah right good luck okay but he compost and compost and he built the soil up and built the soil up and he just it was a labor of love and when he gets his tomatoes it's like <laughs> it's like he gets out a machete and he wards everybody off because we all love his tomatoes they're so tasty it's so good so delicious and when we you know if we have one of his tomatoes and then we come home and buy one at the grocery store or whatever the one at the grocery store just tastes like cardboard it's just absolutely amazing how awful it is but we if we don't take the time to to actually teach ourselves the difference and show ourselves the difference, it's a real problem. And and I would really challenge everybody listening to go to the farmer's market and go to your regular grocery store and buy two of the same 
items, whether it's a tomato from the farmer's market, a tomato from the grocery store, or even if you go to or an organic grocery store, it's, it's still this, it, there's still a huge difference. And get some carrots and get some carrots. And then cut them up, put them on two different plates, and sample them one after another. And you will be amazed at how much of a difference there is because you really can't tell. I'm just always, always amazed at the difference in my, my father's tomatoes and carrots and, and uh, even uh, garlic compared to what I can get anywhere else. Yep. I actually would like to add one more item to this test, and that would be an ADR4. ADR systems, ADR for harmonizing charger. And, uh, you know, you, you should also split both of these samples and charge both of them on an ADR4 and see the difference. Compare, compare a, um, I don't know, whatever, a lemon, half a lemon charged, half a lemon not charged, half a carrot charged, half a carrot not charged, and just compare the flavors when you... Uh, uh, when you have it, you will be amazed what's possible. Right. So for those people that aren't really aware, Martin, what what does the ADR4 do? Um, it's, well, it's based on two technologies, magnetic and scalar. Or the scalar sometimes is called uh, zero-point energy. And what that is, is, you know, magnetic and electric is uh, putting out a wave that changes in time scalar puts out a wave that doesn't travel along the time axis. So you have um, how do we say that? One, one deals with electric current and the other one deals with electric potential. And both of these have a specific influence on the water molecules that are in the food. Mm. Which or brings us back to a lot of stuff that uh, Dr. Imoto has talked about. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Imoto was taking pictures of what that looks like if you do or do not harmonize that which you're going to now crystallize. Right. And so when we harmonize these things, our tongue is the uh, sensory agent that gives us the information. I mean, uh, Emoto did it with water crystals that you could actually see how different they are from one another. Here you're going to taste it, and your tongue will tell you. It'll tell you something that's harmonized tastes pleasant to the palate. It's uh, sweeter. Uh, it's uh, less disagreeable. You know, like the best example I can give you a lemon. You know, when you take a lemon, slice it in half, charge one half of it, and then taste the lemon that's been charged, and then right after that, taste the lemon that has not been charged. If you can't tell the difference, I'll uh, send you your money back. <laughs> Well, you, you just said something I think is really, really important, and you talked about harmonization. So, from and most people don't think of plants as living, breathing entities, and of course they are, right? Oh, yeah. So let's say you take two plants, and one plant, what you do is you stick it into depleted soil, you throw a bunch of fertilizer and nitrogen on it, and then some pesticides, you spray it with some herbicides that kill other fungi or whatever, and... Uh, yeah, and, you, know, you push it. Yeah, you, you push some, it to grow. Yeah, and you throw some water at it. Now take, pick another plant that's that you have composted the soil and it's thick and it's rich and it's full of all these nutrients and stuff. And critters are living in it that are supposed to be living in it. And it's 
you know, it's open and it's not crowded either. It's not like in this massive field, one of them gazillion straws of wheat. And you grow that. Now, which one do you think is going to be stressed out? Well, we know if we were talking about human beings where you're feeding them poor food and they're all crammed together and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and they, have, you know, they don't get any fresh air and all the rest of it and you spray them with <laughs> cleanser you know, yeah, bleach them. and stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we know how we'd feel as human beings and, and we'd be pretty stressed out, right? So well, let me, I think let, the me organic the, let me quote the report, Scott. Okay. Sick, so- sick soils means sick plants, sick animals, and sick people. Physical, mental, and moral fitness depends largely upon the ample supply and a proper proportion of minerals in our foods. Mm-hmm. Nerve function, nerve stability, and nerve cell building likewise depend upon trace mineral- minerals. Cool. So... Yeah. And then here, here of course, they, they have another line. Prevention of disease is easier, more practical, and more economical than cure. And this, of course, is the critical point. We now have sick soils, sick, sick population, and the most expensive health care on the planet. The whole thing is totally upside down. Yep. And in the Congress and Senate, they're presently debating how they're going to finance this nonsense right? without going back doing the right thing, which would be think strategically. Where is the most benefit you can get? Yeah, what would happen if you actually fed people good food? Yes. What would happen if you actually made good food? Yes. What would actually happen if you did the sustainable, long-term, non-plunder stuff? And I got to take a shot at my good friend, Mac D. You know, All right. there we, we've talked about it many times, but here you have a great example of, you know, we're, what we're talking about is eating good food. And there was that documentary, Supersize It, or Supersize Me, or whatever it was, mm-hmm. where the guy ate at McDonald's, and after, I, th- I don't think he made it a month before his doctor was begging him to stop because he had gone from being a relatively healthy individual to, you know, you're going to have a heart attack like tomorrow just from eating the food that was there. Yeah, of course, I don't know if people remember it. I'll just recap it. This fellow went on eating all of his meals at McDonald's, and I don't know why he chose McDonald's. Whatever. That was just the luck of the draw. Uh, I... I Yes, he did document it. There's a movie out there. But what I want to say is this is not to be picking on McDonald's alone. This is the industry, yeah. the whole thing. You know, There is not an exception that I know of. Yeah. Anyway, the point was that he ate all three meals. Breakfast. Yeah, so we're saying don't, if you quit McDonald's, don't go to Burger King thinking you're improving matters. Right. <laughs> That's the point. Yes. <laughs> okay. um, anyway, the, the issue was that at mid of his uh, commitment, which was two weeks in, he had a liver test, which was showing that he was essentially going into crisis, that he was so inflamed, it was practically shutting down. And the threat was that indeed he was going to die of a uh, a heart attack or something of the sort because the uh, C-reactive proteins and all of that, that's the markers of a body in crisis, were rising so rapidly. Yeah, and this was not the case when he started the documentary? 
Yeah, absolutely. He was checked before, in the middle, and after. And they were begging him to stop because uh, he was endangering himself, directly putting himself not just in danger of some future consequence, immediate. So that's what happens when you, I mean, he just accelerated the process. For most people, that's a 20 or 30 year process, right? Right, yeah, he just made it in 30 days. 15 days. 15 days. <laughs> so, yeah, so soil depletion means no minerals, which means no food, which means high calorie intake, low nutritional intake, which means, uh-oh, you're in trouble. Okay, so the point is this. We, as consumers have created these problems. We are the idiots. We have been buying cheap food instead of quality food. This is where it starts. This is where it must start. We must take responsibility and buy the food that nourishes us. We need to start asking questions. What sort of soil was this grown in? Was this grown with fertilizers? And how is it biodynamic? We must start buying food that is rich in nutrients, responsibly grown in a sustainable manner. And I'm, I don't know how more, uh, what's the word, important I can make this point. But if, if we don't get this, the degenerative changes in our society will essentially crash the whole thing. We, we've talked about the level of autism rising and other illnesses of this sort. This is truly going to explode. We're going to have so much of allergies and fibromyalgia and you name all of those inflammatory diseases that is pretty much going to shut down the society as we know it. That is my prediction. Yeah. <laughs> Paint the black picture, Martin. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's def. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, we you'd mentioned autism. You know, it used to be one in ten thousand. Now it's one in one hundred and fifty children. Yes. And uh, we're really concerned about it. And when we look at it, there's one of the problems is hey, they're not getting the nutrients they should be getting, or they're getting uh, drinking milk that's full of hormones that we've been yep. sticking in the cow. Right. Right. So, I mean. You're getting it vicariously, right? Which, you know, and then then you compound it with homogenization and pasteurization. You know, those two things alone, sure, they make it convenient because uh, I don't know if you remember this, but the milk that I used to get as a kid, or my mother used to buy it, it had a one-day shelf life. Oh. Before homogenization. All right. No, I, it was before my time. Oh, I see. Well, I, I grew up in Europe, in the um, you know, Czech Republic. So, um, you know, we had to buy fresh milk every day, and it only had one day shelf life. Tomorrow it went sour. So, my mother used to whatever milk was not uh, consumed, she would bring it to a boil. So it tasted different. I remember that. I didn't like drinking the boiled milk. I liked the fresh stuff. <laughs> but that was that. That was because of the homogenization. Right, the pasteurization. Well, no, homogenization. Pasteurization makes it uh, last uh, a day or two. Homogenization makes it last um, a week. 
And, you know, that's actually an interesting point, Martin. I mean, when we look at how, and you, I, when you mentioned growing up in Europe, this is what brought, brought it to my mind, because in Europe, the routine of the average person, I don't think it is today, but what I remember it to have been when I was growing up was you had to go down to the, the baker every day, to the, to the butcher every day, to the dairy guy every day, that was the rounds that the, the moms yeah. made. They would just go and they would stop here, pick up a loaf of bread, stop here, pick up some milk, stop here, pick up some meat, stop here, pick up some vegetables, go home. There was there was none of this weekly shopping that we do now, right, where you go pack the car up for a week and eat the food for the coming week. And it couldn't be that way because there was no way to keep the food. And the food wasn't processed to the point where it would... It would last that long or be palatable for that long right yeah that's the point yeah. but the, fa- the fact is that if you're eating living food and you basically pulled it out of the ground it's like dying now and you got to eat it relatively quickly before it goes goes bad and we keep wanting to make it last longer last longer last longer not and I think that the, the problem with that is is that the longer you make it last the less nutrition there is for you to take out of the food Mm-hmm. That's right. So let's uh, let's jump into the two points that are worth covering here: missing minerals and missing enzymes. You know, the minerals are mainly the fault of the soil. The enzymes are mainly the fault of the food processing. Right, and we need both. We need, yeah, absolutely. Well, the we, we have spent these last few minutes talking about minerals, mainly. Yes. Although we should be, we should be saying, and of course the uh, other bits, you know, the phytonutrients, the whatever else is in the plant, is important, and the enzymes are very important. Anyway, so there are these articles on um, on Life Enthusiast website under Health Concern, the Cause of Disease section. What, what we're going over is the soil depletion and then missing minerals and missing enzymes. I wonder if we should save the uh, details for later or uh, dive into it. What do you think? Well, I think we've we really come up to the end of this episode. We're, almost, we're over 30 minutes now, so maybe next time what we should do is get into the minerals and the enzymes in more detail. Okay. It's important to understand the difference between organic and inorganic, and I think it's important to understand the synthetics versus naturals and the solutions that exist. So, yes, let's, uh, we'll be talking about the solutions, the ways that uh, one can actually prevent this tragedy. Cool. Okay, so I'm um, sorry that there's no, there's no obvious solution offered today, but... Um, we will have that for you on the next episode. So thank you for listening. This is Martin and Scott for Life Enthusiast Co-op. Uh, restoring vitality to you and to the planet. Okay. Uh, you can find us at www.life-enthusiast.com or call us at 866-543-3388. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye, everybody.